Heavenly Father, we thank You, we praise You, we worship You, Lord. You're such an awesome God. We thank You for Your Word, that it's not an old antiquated book, but it truly is the living, breathing Word of God. We thank You, Lord, that Your Word applies to every single life in this room this morning. And we pray as we go to Your Word that Your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, that, Father, our hearts would be receptive, that we'd be prepared to hear from You this morning. So, Lord, we love You, we praise You, we worship You, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Now, real quickly, in the last few chapters we were looking at, at Luke's abbreviated account of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, I believe, is the, one of the greatest messages ever spoken in the Bible. Any word that came out of Jesus' mouth is great anyway. And any word in the Bible is great. But he spoke and he gave us clear instruction of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Last week we looked at the fruit of salvation. How do you know you're a Christian? What things change about us when we give our life to Jesus Christ? The first thing we looked at was our attitude and our action towards others. We talked about how the Bible tells us very clearly that we are to love our enemies, to esteem others greater than ourselves, that we don't overcome evil with evil, but we overcome evil with good. The Word of God tells us very clearly that we're to pray for those who we struggle with, not look down upon them, not be self-righteous toward them. We're to give to those who cannot repay. We're to serve with anonymity. We're not to judge or condemn people, but we are to be fruit inspectors in a sense. We are to look and see if things are so according to the Word of God. We also talked about our attitude about ourselves. The world tells us esteem self. Jesus tells us deny self. The Bible says if you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. If any man desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. A man-centered gospel says, you're wonderful, you're great, it's all about you, you need to do things for yourself. But the gospel tells us the exact opposite, that we're to do everything as unto the Lord. Amen? For His glory, not ours. We also looked at the source of our words and our actions. The Bible tells us how the overflowing of a man's heart, his mouth speaks. If you want to find out what's in somebody's heart, just listen to their conversation. The things that come out of our mouth don't come out by accident. Nothing slips out. When you listen to the heart of a man, to, to the speech of a man, you learn about the heart of a man. These were all the words that Jesus taught us as we were looking. And then lastly, he talked about our foundation in the day of judgment. You know, we talked about the wise man building his house upon the rock and the foolish man building his house upon the sand. And when the rain or the day of judgment came, that the man who built his house upon the sand, it crumbled. And you know what? If your foundation is upon anything other than the rock, Jesus Christ, your foundation is going to crumble. It will either crumble now or it will crumble ultimately. And you know what? The only way we can have peace is if we're standing upon the sure foundation, the rock of Jesus Christ. We don't stand on popularity with men. We don't stand on empty religion and, and you know, with religiosity or church membership. And we don't stand on our own self-righteous actions. But we stand upon the shed blood of Jesus Christ upon the cross. Him crucified, risen from the dead, seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf, and coming back one day. Amen? And if you're standing on anything other than that, then it's going to fall apart. So now this morning, we're going to see that we've gone from the words of Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to see Him teach us in action. One of the things I love about the Bible is we see the words of God, and then we see the actions of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to look at that this morning. He's going to take some of the words He's taught us, and He's going to put them into action. I titled the message today, A God of Compassion. And over the next two weeks, we're going to see, as we go through Luke 7, the compassionate heart of our God. 
Jesus is our Lord. He's our Savior and our King. He's God made manifest in the flesh. He came to earth to restore the relationship between sinful man and a holy God and to reveal to us the heart of our Father. It says in John 14, verses 7, 9, and 10, If you have known Me, you would have known My Father also. For now you know Him and have seen Him. He who has seen Me has seen the Father. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in Me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on My authority, but the Father who dwells in Me does the work. Jesus revealed the Father to us. And as we see the compassionate actions of Jesus Christ in the first 17 verses this morning of Luke chapter 7, we're going to see the compassionate heart of our Heavenly Father. Let me tell you what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to see His compassionate heart toward, one, a tormented and a dying servant. We're going to see His compassionate heart toward a, a, a grieving widow whose heart is broken. Then next week we'll see His compassionate heart toward a doubting prophet in John the Baptist. And then His compassionate heart toward a sinful woman who comes to Him with a heart of repentance and worship. I want you to know that a lot of times you look at the Bible and, and people mis misunderstand who our God is. They think that God is, a, is standing up in the clouds with a lightning bolt in His hand just waiting to smoke you when you make a mistake. And you know what? That's not our God. He's a God of love and grace and mercy and compassion. He's a God of fifth, five hundredth, and five millionth chances. That's the God that we serve. He loves us. Where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. He is a gracious, a loving, and a merciful God. And praise the Lord for that. So, we're going to look at some tangible examples of His compassion. And so let's begin in chapter 7, in verse 1. We'll look at our Lord's compassion in response to humility and marvelous faith in the healing of a centurion's servant. And you know what? It blows me away that Jesus marveled. And we're going to look at marvelous faith. But, I mean, He's the creator of the universe. You'd think, what in the world can make the Son of the living God marvel? Let's take a look and we'll see. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 7. So now when He concluded all His sayings, when He finished the Sermon on the Mount, in the hearing of the people, He entered Capernaum. So on the completion of His sermon, He's now going to, He moved down to Capernaum. Capernaum was about 25 miles away. And God had, in the, in the person of the Father, had in the Son a divine appointment waiting for Him. And so he heads down to Capernaum, about 25 miles away. Capernaum means a walled city which is comfortable. So he goes from, from the Sermon on the Mount, and he goes into this walled city that is comfortable, and he's going to meet, or have a man who's going to send someone out to speak with him. Let's take a look at verse 2. So says, a certain centurion's servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. Now a centurion was a Roman soldier who was placed in charge of, a, of over 100 men. And it's interesting to me that every centurion you see in the Bible is a man who is mentioned to have high character and great duty. A man of power and position in a place of security and comfort. He lives in a walled city of security and comfort. He's a man of great power and great position. But we're going to find that when difficulties come, he only, there's only one place this man can go for answers. You know what? He's got the position. He's got the power. He's got the money. He's got the wealth. But you know what? He doesn't have the answers. You know why? Because Jesus Christ is the answer. And praise the Lord that God had worked upon his heart because we're going to see that's where he looks. So it says here that a, man, a servant who was dear to him. Now the centurions did not typically, were not typically, the Romans in general, were not typically men of humility. They were men of power. And this man looked down and had compassion toward his servant. 
It says he was sick and ready to die. In Matthew's account, it said he was lying home paralyzed and dreadfully tormented. So this centurion has a, a servant that works for him who's in torment and pain. He's paralyzed and he's dying. And this man of power and wealth and position has no answers. And you know what? He's going to be drawn to the place where the only answers can be. Verse 3. And so when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. So here we have an act of humility and faith by a man that would seem, again, be unlikely to come to the Lord. Why? He was a man of war. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He was a Gentile, and Jesus is the King of the Jews. But all that was outweighed by the fact that this was going to be a man of great faith. Now, where did this faith come from? How does a centurion man who's a Roman, who's been raised in idol worship, who's been raised in a place where, where you honor yourself and you go after position and mo- it's all about wealth and money and power, he's living in a comfortable city, what in the world could have happened to this man that would cause him to have faith and to seek after Jesus? The answer is in the very first part of verse 3. And what does it say? And when he heard about Jesus. Our theme verse at Calvary Chapel is faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Somebody told this centurion about Jesus. Amen? And that's where his faith came from. You know what? As Christians, we've got the answer. We're not, we're not, we're not the answer. We're not self-righteous and holier than thou, but we know what the answer is. We know what the hope is for a lost and a dying world. We know that those who are trying to find it in wealth and trying to find it in position and trying to find it in where they live are are not going to have any peace. And they're going to be empty. And you know what? We can take them to where hope is by telling them about our Savior and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? And what happened here is somebody came to the centurion and told him about Jesus. And it says here, when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him. In an act of humility, he sent the elders of the Jews to Jesus. You notice he didn't send a regiment of men to go grab Jesus and drag him to his house. Now, he could have done that. You know, he's he's in the place of authority. He could have said, you know what, guys, go out and get him and bring him here. Now, we know later that's exactly what does happen. And we see some military men come and grab Jesus and drag him before them. But he doesn't do that. Instead, in an act of humility, he sends out the elders of the Jews. He calls them to him and says, go talk to Jesus and tell him what has happened. Could you go seek his favor? Go, go before him on my behalf. And so the elders went before the Lord. It says in verse 4, And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying, that one for whom he should do this was deserving. For he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Now it's interesting to me, this centurion was a pretty unique man. You know why? He not only loved his servant, but had shown great love and kindness toward the Jews under his authority, even building them a synagogue. He was such an awesome man in the eyes of the Jews that they were willing to intercede on his behalf. They saw in this man something different, and they went to Jesus and they interceded on his behalf. They cried out fervently for him. And you know what that's a picture of for us this morning? that we ought to be interceding on behalf of others. Amen? As these Jews went out, they were interceding fervently before the Lord. It says there in verse 4, and it says, This man is one who is deserving, for he loves our nation, and he has built us a synagogue. They cry out to him and say, You know what? He's a man who loves our nation. He's a man who loves our people. You know, he's deserving of this. You know, they cry out to the Lord. Now, the reality is that none of us is deserving of anything. There's only one thing we deserve, and we don't want that. Amen? 
Because of our sinfulness, we deserve to be separated from God for all eternity. But praise the Lord that we're not going to get what we deserve if we trust in Him. But the reality is that there should be a heart of intercession on, on our behalf. When do you want, you want to see God's compassion? Intercede on behalf of others. You see those who are struggling, who don't have hope? Intercede on their behalf. Go before the throne of grace and cry out on their behalf because they can't. If they don't know the Lord, then their prayers are like yelling down a well. The Bible says that if we have, have iniquity in our heart, that God cannot hear our prayers. Why? Because God cannot have sin in His presence. None. He's a perfect and a holy God. But through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, the veil was torn, and through Him and Him alone, we can enter into God's holy presence. And we ought to be interceding on behalf of our co-workers. How many of you have co-workers who don't know Jesus? Raise your hand. We need to pray for them. Amen? And you know what? Prayer doesn't change God's mind. It changes our hearts. And as we pray for them, our heart will be changed toward them. We'll have a desire to minister to them. Instead of being, going, oh man, there's that knucklehead. You know, there's that guy, man, my boss who's just a, got a bad attitude. Instead of, man, that guy's a jerk. We'll be saying, man, maybe today's the day I'm going to get to share my faith with him. Maybe today's the day that God's going to answer that prayer. And as my heart is being changed, we need to intercede on their behalf. And these men come and they intercede on behalf of this Roman centurion, and they cry out to the Lord. Verse 6. Then Jesus went with them. So they interceded on his behalf, and they brought the Lord to the centurion. The Lord was coming to the centurion. And you know what? That's what we need to do with the world. We need to bring people to Jesus. Amen? We need to be like Andrew. Come and see. Come and meet the one who's changed my life and transformed me. Come and see. Our God is an awesome and a faithful God. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Imagine this rich and powerful Roman officer telling a poor Jewish rabbi that he was unworthy to have him in his house. Romans, again, were not known for being humble, especially before their Jewish subjects. But here we see a clear picture of how we should come to the Lord. How do we come to the Lord? How do you come to Him? You know what? We need to come humbly. Amen? Never self-righteous. You know, I'm grieved sometimes when I hear people pray. Sometimes you hear people pray and their prayers are all about them. And you know what? When we pray, our prayer should begin with praise. Amen? Praise unto Him. Sometimes we pray and we're demanding. And, you know, I hear people pray and demand and tell God what He needs to do. You know, Lord, this is what you need to do. And I'm claiming it. You've got to do this. I'm telling you. You better, you know, by next week at this time, you better. Whoa, stop. That's not humble. That's not broken. That's not coming before God in fear and trembling. You know, we need to come before Him with some awe and some reverence. He's God. He's creator of the universe. Amen? And we come before Him. We need to seek after Him with our whole heart and come in all humility thankful that He is a loving and a gracious and a merciful God. We need to faithfully trust in His sovereignty. Because a man is saying here, you know what, you don't need to come to my house. Please, you know, I'm not worthy that you come under my roof. And you know what, he's going to say, it says in Matthew's account, you just speak the word and I know that my servant will be healed. He trusted in the sovereignty of God. Sometimes we, and I, I know that I do, there are times when I struggle with, with full trust in the sovereignty of God. How many of you ever in your life said why to God? Something's happened. He said, wait a minute, that just doesn't seem fair. And you know what? That's when we struggle with the sovereignty of God. When we come humbly before Him, when we realize that He is perfect and He's gracious and He's a God who's in control, we will not question His sovereignty. He's faithful. He's perfect. Everything He does is right. We don't demand. We don't claim. We don't direct. We don't tell God what to do. 
Prayer doesn't change God's mind, it changes our hearts. We humbly come before the throne of grace. We cry out to Him from our hearts and ask Him for His will to be done. He says, therefore, I do not think myself worthy to come to you. In verse 7, say the word and my servant will be healed. Again, you just say the word, Lord, and I know that he will be healed. You just speak it and it will happen. What incredible faith we have from a man who grew up with idol worship. What incredible faith we have from a man who had been trusting in his own power and his own ability and his own might. And now, very quickly, he just says, you know, you say the word and I know that my servant will be healed. You know, sometimes we pray and then we're blown away when God answers it. Have you ever been guilty of that? I have. I remember one time down in Southern California, we had a lady, a real dear lady in our church, and she came forward on a, on a Sunday morning and very distraught. Her husband was falling apart and she had found out that she had head-to-toe cancer and they had given her a matter of weeks to live. They said, there's nothing we can do. The Bible says in James, if there are any sick among you, let's call for the elders to, to pray. Not that the elders are supernatural guys or anything like that, but it's an act of faith saying, God, we trust and we believe that you can heal if you choose to. And so we all laid hands on this woman. We prayed for her. And Friday I get a call at my house and she is screaming through the phone. And I said, what is it? I just went to the doctor. All the cancer is gone. All the doctors are blown away. My husband's blown away. We're going to have a huge party. We want you to come over. This is the most incredible. And I was blown away. What? Really? Are you sure? Did they, yeah, I, really? You talked to a doctor? They look, I mean, and you know, the sad part is we pray, and then we're blown away when God answers our prayer. We have faithless prayer most of the time. We pray for headaches. I know the Lord can handle a headache. He can take care of that. A headache, all right. You know, we, and we pray for, you know, I got a, you know my ankle kind of hurts. Or, yeah, I pray for that. You know, you pray for little things. Cancer, oh man, oh man, well, that must be your time. God must be done with you. You know what I mean? Sometimes we fall into that trap and we think that God can't answer those prayers. That's faithless prayer. We need to learn and trust that God is faithful and He's in control. And all things work together for good for those who trust in God. And this Roman centurion said, you just speak the word and I know He'll be healed. That's faith. Look at verse 8. It says, For I am also a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. So he understood that as a man under authority, that he could command other men. And when he commanded them, they did as he said. But what's awesome to me is this Roman centurion, again, raised in a pagan land, trained to be self-sufficient, had such incredible faith that he understood both he and Jesus were under authority that he could command under the authority of Rome, and that Jesus could command diseases under the authority of his heavenly Father. What incredible faith. This is marvelous faith. And how do I know that? Because verse 9 is going to make the Lord marvel. It's a fulfillment, he said again in Matthew 8, but only speak the word and my servant will be healed. That's a fulfillment of Psalm 107 verse 20 where he said he sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. If a Roman with very little instruction, had that kind of faith in God's Word, how much greater ought our faith to be? Amen? This was a man who had heard about Jesus, but in a very limited way. This was a man who had been raised in a pagan land. This was a man who may have had access to some of the Old Testament, but certainly did not have what we have today. We have the completed revelation, 66 books written by 40 authors on three continents and three languages with one central theme and no contradictions. How is that possible? Because God wrote it. Amen? We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. Should we not have marvelous faith? Shouldn't we trust God no matter what's going on? 
We've read the book. We see the end of the story. We're going to heaven, you guys, if you've given your life to Jesus Christ. Amen? We win when it's all over. And shouldn't we trust Him? And this Roman centurion trusted God. And he said, you just speak the word. And you know what? I'm a man under authority. If I just say, if you just say the word, because you're a man under the authority of the Father, you just speak it, and I know his disease will go away. I know that he'll be healed. You just speak the word. I believe it. I trust you. Look at the Lord's response. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. Jesus marveled. Man, how awesome is that, that the faith of a man could make Jesus marvel? There's only two times in the entire New Testament where you see our Lord marvel. He marvels here and in the other accounts of this, of this Roman centurion at this man's great faith. And then in Mark 6, he marvels at the great unbelief of the Jews. So he marvels both at the belief of a man who had very little exposure to the truth, And then he marvels at the unbelief of those who had been delivered all of the truth. And so we, you know what, there are many people who are marveling God today. But unfortunately, I think more people are marveling Him with their unbelief than those who are marveling Him with their belief. Again, we have the completed revelation. And just as he marveled at the unlearned Roman's faith, so he too he marveled at the unbelief of those who'd studied His Word. You know, a godly heritage without faith is meaningless. It says, I say to you, I've, found, I've not found faith not even in Israel. It says in the companion text of Matthew 8, And I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What does that mean? He's saying Gentiles will enter the kingdom of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They will come from far and wide to receive Jesus. They will enjoy salvation and the blessing of God. But sons of the kingdom, Jews... People who have been raised with the Word. Physical heirs to Abraham. Though they had both the Word and the Messiah right before them, they missed Him. And what they will face is a result of, of being cast into outer darkness where there is re- weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's a reference to hell. There is a hell, you guys. A lot of churches, they don't want to talk about hell. They don't want you to be offended. You might not come back. Here's the reality. I'd rather tell you about it than have you experience it. Amen? Hell is a real place. Jesus talked more about hell than He did about heaven. Why? Because He was warning people. That religiosity is not enough. That having a, a, you know, going to church and church membership and, you know, having a religious heritage and background will not get us into heaven. It's not good enough. And he's saying here, he marveled at their unbelief. Jesus' words would have gripped everybody who stood by. All the Jews who stood by when he said, you know what, I've never seen faith like this, not even in Israel. Here's a Roman centurion and he gets it. And here are these Pharisees standing right by me and they don't get it. Here's, here's a man who's just heard a little bit about Jesus and he understands. Here are men, and men who have heard all about Jesus, who have transcribed Scripture, who have spent days and weeks and months and years in the Word, who have been legislators and high priests in the, in the church, and they still don't understand. You know why? Because it's not about religion, you guys. It's about a relationship. Amen? I don't like the word religious. And let me tell you why. I like really mean. The word religion, religio, means to relink. And religion is relinking sinful man back to holy God. But the problem is that if you, if you use the word religious today, what do you think of? Piety and 
self-righteousness and achieving things based on my own works. And if I crawl to Mecca on glass, then God will love me. Or you know, if I do some righteous deeds, and somehow I'll find favor with God. But you know what, you guys? It has nothing to do with us and it has everything to do with Him. And I want to ask you this morning, do you have a relationship with God? Not do you know about Him? Do you spend one hour a week with Him? But is He your best friend? Are you married to Him? That's what the Bible says. We're the bride of Christ. Are you married to Him? Do you spend 24-7 with Him? Does He walk with you and talk with you along the narrow way? Is He your God, your Savior, your, your King? Is He? Or is it just, well, I grew up in a church. I've always gone to church. My parents took me to church. It's what I do an hour a week. Heaven forbid that we fall into the trap of the Pharisees. So too it should grip us like it gripped those people who are trusting in their heritage, religious affiliation, church membership, or good works to get them in heaven. Again, it's not about religion. It's about a relationship with God. This man had marvelous faith because he said, I trust your word. I believe what you say. We need to learn to trust the word of God completely. Verse 10. And those who were sent, returning to the house, found the servant well who had been sick. The humble and faithful intercession on behalf of his servant resulted in a healing word from the Lord. Marvelous faith produced marvelous results. Amen? Marvelous faith produced marvelous results. Well, Pastor Dave, are you trying to say then if I have enough faith that everybody I know will be healed if I just have... No. Because sometimes God's will is not to heal. Some of you may have gone to church where they teach you that you've know, you got to have enough faith and just believe and then God will heal. But the reality is we pray for God's will to be done. And for God to be glorified. And you know what? Sometimes God is going to be more glorified in our infirmity than in our healing. Amen? Apostle Paul, pretty godly guy, what do you think? Amen? Wrote most of the New Testament. The Bible says he had a thorn in his flesh all of his life. He prayed and God never took the thorn away. Why? Because it kept him weak and humble before God. And you know what? We need to pray for God's will to be done. Trust that he can do it. But trust that he has answered prayer even when... We're not delivered from the sickness. A compassionate word on behalf of a faithful master transformed a dying servant. Let's move on. We're going to look at our Lord's compassionate touch of a dead boy on behalf of a weeping and broken widow. So we see here where the Word of God brought compassion and transformation. And now we're going to see the touch of God bring transformation and compassion to a life that is hurting. Verse 11. Now it happened the day after that he went into the city called Nain, and many disciples went with him and a large crowd. Nain means a dwelling place, a pasture. Again, about 25 more miles from, from Capernaum. Jesus arrived there the very next day after healing the centurion's servant. He was moving quickly with a large crowd with him, and Jesus arrived according to the sovereignty of God in God's perfect timing for a divine appointment. You know what? I love the fact that there are divine appointments in my life every single day. And I want you to know there are divine appointments in your life every single day. Nothing happens by chance. Most of you know I spent many, many years as a youth pastor, and I used to tell the kids in the youth group, when you go to school tomorrow, look to the kid to the left and the kid to the right, that's a divine appointment. God brought them there by chance. Not by chance. They're there for a reason. When you go to your locker, that kid on each side of your locker, God put them there for a reason. 
When we go home today, your neighbor's on both sides. That's a divine appointment. God puts you there to be salt and light to that place. And you know what else? I believe that God brings divine appointments when we're walking down the street, when we're at work, when I'm on sales calls. Most of you I still have a full-time job. Those are divine appointments, opportunities for the gospel. Nothing happens by chance. Well, the Lord is traveling with a crowd, and he goes down to the city of Nan. And as he's walking into the city, he's going to, by divine appointment, run into a crowd that is going in the opposite direction. And let's take a look at that crowd. What kind of crowd was it? Verse 12. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd of the city was with her. Now what an incredible contrast between these two crowds. One crowd is following the Lord and they're rejoicing as they're heading into the city. They've just seen Him do miraculous work. They've heard His mighty word be taught and they're rejoicing as they head into the city. And as they're traveling along, they run into a crowd that is a funeral dirge. They're headed to the cemetery to bury somebody. They're crying out and they're weeping and they have no hope. You've got the crowd of hope running into the crowd of no hope. You've got the crowd of life and joy and peace running into the crowd of misery and pain and suffering. And as these two crowds come together, we're going to see an awesome work. But you know what? Isn't that a picture of what happens every single day when we run into a lost and a dying world? We're the ones with hope. We're the ones with peace. We're the ones that understand what life is all about. And God brings us by divine appointment into people who are basically headed to the cemetery. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. They don't know God. And God brings us into their path for a reason. And by divine appointment, He wants us, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to compassionately reach out and touch them and point them to the Savior. And what's interesting is, watch what Jesus does. Because as these crowds come together, the widow, can you imagine? It says she's a widow, which means that her husband has already died. Can you imagine the the torment in this woman's life? Her husband is already dead, and now her only son has died. And I think it's interesting that it's the only son. Just like Jesus is the only begotten son. Amen? And the only begotten son is going to come, and the only son of this woman, and they're going to come together, and we're going to see the funeral dirge meet the crowd of hope and watch what happens. I love this. This is great. So spiritually speaking, again, each of us in this room, you're in one of those two crowds. If you don't know Jesus... You're headed to the cemetery. You're already in the cemetery because the Bible says you're dead in your trespasses and sins. But you need to trust God and you'll be in the crowd of hope. Look what it says in verse 13. When the Lord saw her, He had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. This woman is in a place of seemingly inconsolable grief that must have consumed her completely. Again, having lost her husband, she had now lost her son. So not only would she have to deal with the intense grief of losing her husband and her only son, now, in those days... If you were a widow and you didn't have children, you typically ended up being very poor and not taken care of in any way. So not only did she have the grief of losing her husband and losing her son, but she was facing a life of despair. But then something happened. She ran into Jesus. And despair went away. Amen? And that's what happens to us. If you're living a life with no hope and, and living a life of despair, Jesus Christ will change all of that. So the Lord looked at her, and the Lord saw her and had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. You know, there's only one that could take away her grief. There's only one. And there's only one that could take away our grief. The grief over our sin. 
Only Jesus could solve the source of weeping. And spiritually speaking, it was looked at a few weeks ago where it says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's only when we mourn over our sin that we can know the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It's only when we mourn and are brought to the end of ourselves and realize that we are sinners in need of a Savior that we will cry out for God. And then He will touch us, heal us, make us new creations in Christ, and comfort us in the power of His Holy Spirit. It's only when we brought to the place of weeping over sin that we may know His comfort. And this woman, the Lord sees her, He had compassion on her, and He said to her, Do not weep. Verse 14. Then He came and touched the open coffin. Now, remember before when we looked earlier at Jesus touching the leper. Remember, leprosy is a typology or a picture in the Bible of sin. What does it do? It destroys. When you have leprosy, you are an outcast. You could not go near other people. You had to live in a leper colony. When somebody came near you, you had to go, unclean, unclean. You had to cry out and everybody would run in the other direction. Leper! And they'd all run away from you. That would be a nice life to live. Not only that, your body is falling apart before your eyes. And I love the fact that when Jesus healed the leper, He didn't speak from, you're healed, 100 yards away. (laughs) He didn't do that. This leper who had been touched by no one, who could not be near his family, who could not go into the synagogue and worship, Jesus saw him, had compassion on him, and he went up and he touched him. The first one to touch that man since the day he got leprosy, and he was healed. And you know what? The same thing happens here, because ritualistically to the Jews, if you touched a dead body, you were unclean. Ceremonially unclean. And you had to go through a bunch of rituals to become clean again. But you know what? Jesus is the only one that can touch a dead person. And He doesn't become unclean, but they become clean. Amen? Everyone else, they would become clean by touching death, but not our Lord. He triumphed over sin and death, the Bible says. And He reaches into the coffin and He touches this boy. Boy, I love that. The Lord desires to touch each one of us. And those who carried Him stood still and He said, Young man, I say to you, arise. Now, what's interesting again, he says, arise, young man, arise. When he raised Lazarus from the dead, he said, Lazarus, come forth, right? And we talked about the fact that he just said, come forth, every dead person that had ever been buried would have got up out of the ground. Why? Because he's triumphed over sin and death and he has the power over death. But he said, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus came hopping out. Well, he said, young man, arise. And the young man arose. He gets up. And I love the fact that the only thing that can transform us from being spiritually dead is a touch from Jesus. And the only thing that could transform this man from being physically dead was a touch from Jesus Christ. Could there be a more awesome moment? Look at verse 15. We're almost done. So he said, to, said who was dead, set up and began to speak, and he presented him to his mother. What an awesome moment. Can you imagine the mourning and the weeping and the torment and the despair that was in this mother? You know, I've got four children. I cannot imagine attending the funeral of one of my kids. I cannot even imagine. Can you imagine being at the funeral of your only son? You have no hope. You're in total despair. Your husband's already dead. You're marching along the way, and Jesus comes and heals him and takes this young man and presents him to his mother. What an awesome moment. Man, I would love to have been there. But you know what? That's a picture of something that's coming. Because because we've been touched by Jesus, we will be presented by Him to our Heavenly Father. Amen? 
We were once dead in our trespasses and sins, but because we've been touched by Him, we will now be taken and presented to the Father. And as awesome as this moment was, in this young boy being presented to his mom, the moment when we're presented to our Father is going to be way better than that. Amen? And it can only happen through the touch of Jesus Christ. Once dead, now alive. The boy spoke. His heart had changed. And so too should our, our speech change when we've been touched by Jesus. And again, just as He was presented to His mother, so too will we be presented to the Father. Last two verses. Then fear came upon all. They glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited His people. And this report about Him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. When our God touches and transforms a life, it should be evident to all around that there's been a transformation. When you give your life to the Lord, you should be different. Amen? You shouldn't, you know, people should, should not find out you're a Christian at work and be blown away. That's not a good sign. It's not good. I have a friend at work, says he's a Christian, and we're over in San Jose, and he told somebody he's a Christian. About 15 people started laughing. You? Blah! I'm like, oh, that hurts. That's painful right there. If you tell someone you're a Christian and they all start laughing, that's not good. No, wait a minute. You're not a Christian. Oh, stop. You know, you're not a Christian. And they're laughing, and oh, that breaks your heart. And you know what? As believers in Christ, it should be evident that we're His followers. Amen? Once we were blind and now we can see. Once we were dead and now we've been made alive in Him. And you know what I love about this? It says once He touched that man, that it reached the whole region. That all glorified God. And when our lives have been touched, we should have such an impact on everyone around us that God is glorified and lives are touched. Amen? Now I want to do something again that I mentioned at the beginning of the service, but I want to give a summary real quick. We saw God's compassion upon a tormented servant. Jesus was moved by intercession and marvelous faith of a Roman centurion. He spoke the word and the man was healed. We saw God's compassion on a dead man and moved by the weeping and mourning of his mother. He touched the young man. He transformed him from death to life. We saw our Lord's mercy, grace, and compassion. It's available to everybody in this room this morning if you just trust Him by faith. If you mourn over your sin, He'll reach out and touch you. Next week, we'll look at His compassion in times of doubt. Sometimes as, Christian, you str- as Christians, we struggle with despair and doubt. We're going to look at next week in the life of John the Baptist, how the Lord by, with compassion deals with that. And lastly, His compassion toward a sinful woman. What I want to close with this morning is I want to talk to you real quick.